Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Nurses are under tremendous stress due to workplace conditions and patient loads. Nurses need to step up and talk and speak to our legislators to change that. Otherwise, more patients will die. And we have obviously a moral and ethical promise to our patients as nurses that we are their advocate. And if we can't speak for them, then nobody else will be able to do that. We'll talk about what some nurses are doing to reduce that patient-to-nurse ratio to safer levels in just a bit. But first, yesterday the Trump administration formally announced its intention to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Nearly 200 countries signed the accord back in 2016, including the United States. The agreement is designed to cut greenhouse gas emissions, follow the progress of individual countries in cutting those emissions, and help less developed countries prepare for the effects of climate change. For what this could mean globally and locally, we turn to James Geniak. He's the lead Midwest energy analyst for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He started things off by explaining the steps that the U.S. had been taking before the Trump administration started backing away from the accord. So in recent years, the U.S. has seen a reduction in um, greenhouse gas emissions, and a lot of that has been driven through changes in the power sector and how we generate electricity. And uh, recent years, we've seen uh, less coal-fired power plants, um, including here here in Illinois. And um, as a result of that, our overall emissions have been going down. So um, that is is a good thing. However, globally, uh, we're continuing to see carbon emissions rise. And so it's critical for countries like the U.S. to continue playing a, a leadership role on on the international stage, um, also for our economy as the world is transitioning into a 21st century clean energy economy driven by technologies like wind and solar. uh, It's critical that the U.S. continue to play a a leading role in that transition. Well, even though the U.S. has announced that it will pull out of this agreement, if President Trump wins re-election, the remaining countries remain committed. And here in the U.S., we have former California Governor Jerry Brown, New York's current Governor Andrew Cuomo, declaring their states will maintain the pledges regardless of what uh, the U.S. does. What kind of impact do those commitments have? Well, it's not clear yet, but what's very important is that we are seeing states, cities, businesses step up and express the strong desire to continue to meet the goals of the of the Paris Agreement. And Governor Pritzker here in Illinois has also joined the U.S. Climate Alliance. There's now 25 governors nationwide that have signed on to that to track what all of these uh, subnational entities like states and cities are doing to, to reduce emissions and then share that with other countries. So while we work to regain leadership at the federal and, and international level on behalf of the U.S., uh, we do have a number of very important entities that are stepping up to continue to support the Paris Agreement. I want to talk a little bit about the regional and local consequences of the Paris Accords. The agreement was a catalyst that pushed many U.S. states, along with hundreds if not thousands of municipalities, towards more aggressive sustainability policy. What did we see happen in the Midwest and specifically in Illinois? 
one of the uh, most significant opportunities that we have here, here in Illinois is to enact policies uh, that are pending in the state legislature, such as the Clean Energy Jobs Act. And what that would do is uh, continue the state's momentum towards clean energy to reduce the carbon intensity of our power sector, to continue retiring coal plants, and to uh, continue our expansion of wind power and especially solar, and then to address, start to address the transportation sector, uh, bring more electric vehicles to people in the state. And so forward-looking policies like, like the Clean Energy Jobs Act are what we need in states like Illinois and other Midwest states so that uh, we can continue making progress towards the Paris Agreement goals. Well, the Illinois Clean Energy Jobs Act has been a catalyst for climate action here in our state. And this is Isabella Johnson. She's one of thousands of young people who marched downtown this past September at the Illinois Youth Climate Strike. And she had this message for Governor Pritzker. We need your support on seizure the Clean Energy Jobs Act. Um, he can push it through. I know he can, but we need to act, and we need to act now. Um, they don't listen if we try that. We've tried to set up meetings before, and we will definitely meet with J.B. Pitzker. They're not going to listen to us. They don't listen to us. That's why we strike. So the main thing we can do, um, the easiest thing we can do to be involved is just vote. Talk about the activism you've seen specifically from young people around this issue of uh, global warming and, and sustainability. Sure. So in September, we saw one of the largest global demonstrations for climate action ever. And that was led by youth who um, took the day off school to protest and rally in support of climate action. So what we're seeing is that young people are demanding action. They, they want their, their political leaders to uh, take action to safeguard our future. And so that is driving a lot of energy and m momentum, not only in the U.S., but also internationally. And um, as we work toward the, uh, the next U.S. president, ideally getting the United States back into a leadership role in things like the, the Paris Agreement, young people will continue to push toward that goal and then also provide support at state and local levels to continue our, our progress toward climate action. And what is the status of the Illinois Clean Energy Jobs Act right now? It is pending in the state legislature. There are numerous co-sponsors who have signed on to support the bill, both in the House and Senate. It's before the legislature right now, and um, we are continuing to build support for that and hopefully enacting it, if not this veto session, then uh, coming up next spring. You know, when we look at climate change, both locally and globally, we see that it has a disproportionate effect on marginalized communities. And, and there's a lot of conversation and activism around the issue of climate justice and climate racism. Talk about that and in, in the status of those conversations among scientists right now. So it is a big focus of, of research, the, the equity of climate change. We at the, at the Union of Concerned Scientists uh, this summer released a, a report called Killer Heat, and what it does is it looks at future scenarios of increasing extreme heat events in the United States. And one of the findings from that report is that more vulnerable communities, um, lower income communities or those with high 
elderly populations who may not have as much access to air conditioning are most at risk. Part of the effort not only to mitigate global warming, we also need to take steps to protect our communities. And the principles of making sure that we protect all communities are very important in that effort. So as we mentioned, um, the Trump administration's announcement to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement puts the U.S. on track to withdraw officially the day after the 2020 elections. If a new president is elected, is there a path for the U.S. to re-enter this agreement? And how difficult would that be? Well, it's certainly a situation where the U.S. has damaged its leadership and trust in in the international community. So uh, that would certainly need to be rebuilt. But I think that the international community would would welcome the United States back into the agreement. Certainly, um, as you know, we're continuing to see states and cities and major businesses show progress towards the Paris Agreement. It's not as if the U.S. is standing still. We have others who are stepping up in the face of the Trump administration's withdrawal. So I think that continuing that progress and demonstrating that there is widespread popular support in the United States and and real commitment to um, taking action on climate change That's James Geniak. He's lead Midwest energy analyst for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He joined us to discuss the implications of the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. The withdrawal would take place one day after the 2020 elections. James, thanks for breaking this down for us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. The demand for health care services is on the rise, but the nursing workforce in Illinois and across the U.S. is struggling to keep pace. Research shows up to half of all new registered nurses either change positions or leave the industry within the first three years. The primary reasons relate to workplace stress, reduced job satisfaction, and high nurse-to-patient ratios. Nurses need to step up and talk and speak to our legislators to change that. Otherwise, more patients will die. And we have obviously a moral and ethical promise to our patients as nurses that we are their advocate. And if we can't speak for them, then nobody else will be able to do that. That's Doris Carroll, vice president of the Illinois Nurses Association. And she joins me now on the line to discuss the state of Illinois' nursing industry. Also with us in studio is Paul Pater, board member of the Illinois Nurses Association. They're both registered nurses at UI Health. Doris, Paul, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having us. So, Doris, you've been a registered nurse for 36 years. Give us a sense of what working conditions are like for nurses in the area and around the state. Much has changed over the last 150 years of nursing, and nurses are the true backbone of the healthcare industry. What has changed is that instead of um, what I was taught and what I graduated from college was the quality of care was important as well as my expertise, now all of that is impacted by the volume or the number of patients that I have to care for. In fact, I left inpatient nursing back in 1992 because um, conditions were just horrific. And like Paul, I was in the ER setting, but in the obstetrics, labor and delivery, and I was caring for up to eight to nine patients at a time. That was unsafe. And so now what um, I see 
I work in an outpatient setting, but I represent nurses at our hospital in all settings, and it is very difficult. In fact, nurses call me from downstate Illinois telling me that they're caring for up to four patients in an ICU or critical care setting. That's just just completely dangerous. Well, Paul, and, I want to ahead. bring Paul in here. You've worked in several hospital settings throughout your career. Yeah. What has your experience been like? I used to work at Mercy Hospital before I was at UI Health. In that specific hospital, I could have up to eight patients at one time running multiple codes at the same time. Um, a code is when a person is actively dying and you need to provide life-saving treatment in that exact moment. It's very difficult to say that I'm doing my best when I'm burdened with uh, an unfair amount of labor. When you say you were caring for eight patients at a time, was that in an environment that was considered fully staffed? I think by nursing standards, we wouldn't consider that fully staffed. I think by administrative standards, I think they they considered that to be at their core staffing levels. And uh, so obviously there's a disagreement there. Well, Doris, what do we know about the ideal ratio of nurse to patient? We um, certainly have the example of California since 2004 who has had uh, nurse-to-patient ratios, and it's based on research uh, over the almost the last two decades, as well as many professional specialty nursing organizations who make the decisions about what is safe for a uh, number of patients for a nurse to care for. And in an ICU setting, the maximum should not be more than two, although, of course, if a patient has undergone trauma, then that would be a one-to-one ratio. Paul can speak to his area, but in labor and delivery, active labor should be one-to-one. In a step-down setting, it should be not more than three. In a med surge floor, not more than four patients. Paul, you know, Illinois' most recent policy that addressed nurse staffing was passed in 2007. That was the Patient Acuity Mm -hmm. Act. And you're both pushing to revive a bill from this past spring that would enforce safe patient limits for nurses throughout the state. Tell us more about what's contained in that bill. This bill uh, mandates that hospitals have a certain number of staff uh, for each particular unit. And the bill compensates for each specific situation. So in the emergency department, we would have uh, our normal ratio would be three to one if there was a um, what we call an ICU player, someone who is in who needs critical care and a closer eye, we would be at a two to one situation if someone had a trauma or uh, having a, a code, it would be one to one at that point. Having those sorts of standards, lets people know that they can continue to trust the healthcare system when there's a lot of questions that people have right now. I think people don't feel like the healthcare system that we have right now is looking out for them. Instead, it's looking out for, you know, vice presidents and people who are looking to line their pockets within the healthcare industry. Doris, one of the bill's main opponents is hospital associations. They say the cost of hiring more nurses to meet these nurse-to-patient ratios would place a financial burden on already cash-strapped hospitals. Your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that's pretty much hogwash because, of course, if you believe that there is a true nursing shortage and then the hospital association has proposed 
proposed that we would need to hire 20,000 more nurses. Well, you, know, you can look at the data. The data shows that we have about 180,000 nurses with active registered licenses here in Illinois, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually says only about 130,000 nurses are employed. So where are those other 60,000 nurses? They're not all retired. They've chosen to leave, to leave the field. So if we when you speak to Frank Manzo in the next segment, he will explain how the Illinois Economic Policy Institute has proposed that, yes, there will be money spent up front to provide quality and safe patient care, but then it will save Illinois much money on the back end and save patient lives as well. And Doris, what happens if this bill doesn't get passed? What's the next step? We will continue to push and to educate not only nurses and the public at large, but we need to educate our legislators to understand that this will, situation will only worsen over time. And nurses are the true leaders of the healthcare industry, and we need to be the uh, movers and shakers on making this bill yeah, get passed. I, I would agree, and I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that the, the hospital association wants to start a war on nurses, essentially. I'm not exactly sure if that's good optics for them. We're the most trusted industry um, on the planet, and if they want to say that you know we're not looking out for people in the way that that's acceptable to them, I think that's going to be a real problem. I want to bring another voice into this conversation. With us in studio now is Frank Manzo, Policy Director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. Frank, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. So we've been hearing from Doris and Paul about working conditions among Illinois nurses. What's causing this employment gap in Illinois' nursing industry? It's really caused uh, in the immediate term by occupational hazards that make it difficult to retain nurses. Uh, Illinois nurses suffer from overexertion, sprains, cuts, and workplace violence. And in fact, only 18% of Illinois nurses report that the staffing level in their unit is safe. So this is primarily a retention problem. As you pointed out, up to half of all new nurses who enter the profession either change positions or exit the profession altogether within their first three years on the job. Are there enough new nurses entering the profession if we're losing um, that many early in their careers just from college to the hospital or the clinic? Are there enough entering? So as the previous two voices have mentioned, there are many people in the state that are licensed to be nurses in the state who aren't practicing. And those people in general have left the profession. They could come back in if working conditions are better. And there are you know, many uh, students who are, are graduating and becoming nurses. So there is a continuous flow of new nurses into the field. But the problem is retaining those nurses that do enter. Well, Frank, as we mentioned earlier, the most recent policy that addressed nursing staffing in Illinois was passed more than a decade ago. How effective has that law been? The current system is not working. Nurse staffing is informed by this law, which basically asks hospitals to create staffing plans that are based on the recommendations of committees that do include nurses. But the problem is that just three out of every 10 nurses in the state uh, say that their hospital has one of these staffing committees. And of those, of those three out of every 10, more than half report that the staffing decisions on a day-to-day basis are, are not being informed by those committees. The recommendations are not being followed. So clearly the current system is either not enforceable 
or not effective or both. And there is a better path forward. Now, this issue around their staffing isn't limited to Illinois. Doris mentioned California. That's the only state with a law that enforces safe patient limits. Why is it taking so long for other states to pass legislation that protects that nurse-to-patient ratio? It's a great question. And my sense is that there have been lots of efforts to, to pass this type of law, but lawmakers really want to know what the cost is and, and whether or not it would work. And what we find in Illinois, and this was kind of mentioned earlier, is that two out of every three nurses care for five or more patients at any given time. So two out of every three care for five or more patients. In California, that number is much, much lower. And so on every metric for nursing outcomes and patient outcomes, California surpasses the nation, and the data is becoming increasingly more clear on that front. Well, as we mentioned earlier, critics of safe patient limits in Illinois argued the bill would increase labor costs. You've done research in this area. What have you found? The concern there is that they only consider the increased labor costs of hiring additional nurses, which is a cost, yes. But they fail to account for the significant cost burden that understaffing currently imposes on our hospitals. Safe patient limits, the research finds, would reduce nurse turnover, improve injury rates for nurses, improve patient outcomes, and reduce hospital readmissions. And all of these things save millions and millions of dollars for hospitals and allowed for the policy to mostly pay for itself. And that's why the research has found that safe patient limits would have little to no impact on hospital bottom lines. Well, like many states, Illinois' nursing industry is at one point uh, facing a retention issue, but then we're also facing this issue where half of the workforce is nearing retirement age. How will that compound the crisis we currently face? Yeah, that's correct. And that's one of the reasons why we, the, the state of Illinois will need to hire an additional 20,000 nurses over the next decade. And so, again, the, one of the questions is how do we retain the current workforce we have? And then how do we build upon that going into the future? One of the ways to uh, address the gap in registered nurses in the state is to Number one, I guess you could increase uh, pay to make the, the field more attractive for workers. But number two is you can improve working conditions and improve standards for nurses to attract uh, individuals into the field. Paul Pater, you're still in studio with us. And, and aside from enforcing safe patient limits in Illinois, what else would help shape a safer working environment for nurses? One of the recent bills that INA had a hand in passing recently was the Workplace Violence Prevention Act dedicated towards providing healthcare workers with a safe environment and putting the onus on hospitals and healthcare settings to come up with an action plan and a strategy to prevent healthcare workers from being essentially abused. In the emergency department, we are often faced with people who are physically attacked on a near daily basis. Having hospitals and administrators go into places and say, what can we do to help? What can we do to reduce um, this violence in the workplace? And then not blaming nurses for doing their jobs when they do get hurt. Because oftentimes, a lot of people don't understand is that nurses face the highest percentage of workplace violence across all industries. I can speak from my own personal experience. I've been punched and kicked and threatened with knives. Someone's threatened to follow me back to my car at the end of my shift and blow up my car. 
the other day, there was a fist fight in the in that emergency department where a nurse and a security guard got hurt. Another patient um, got into a fight with three police officers and nearly bit off my coworker's finger. This is our everyday life. These are the expectations that have been put upon us. Um, that you know, this violence is just part of the job, and it's not. It, it would not be ex- expected in any other industry. What does intervention look like in in that space? Is it having the presence of more security or or something else? It's more than just having security there because a lot of these incidents occur because of very long wait times. They happen because of the expectations that a patient has is different from the expectations maybe a hospital has. And being unable to educate our patients and educate our hospital administrators so that way we have a, a, a mutual understanding um, I think that that's a problem. Also, you know, we have a real problem in this city specifically about not having enough mental health clinics available. Not to put the problem on mental health patients by any means, but we need to do a better job of looking out for that patient um, population because right now we're ignoring them. It's a real problem. Frank, just as we wrap up here quickly, as I'm listening to Paul talk, it sounds like in part, this is about some adjustments that they're asking for around staffing and safety for nurses. But on the other hand, I'm hearing him speak to something else, something more fundamental in the way hospitals work and the way they're able to provide service for patients. So is there a deeper question here that needs to be answered that goes along with this issue of, of nurse staffing? The deeper question has to be about our priorities as a state and and about the value we place on, yes, nurse working conditions, but also patient lives. Sure, this policy of of increasing staffing uh, does come at a cost of hiring additional nurses, but as I said before, is offset by uh, some savings that accrue from improved uh, staffing standards. But the question is at a small cost, you know, as little as 1% of total hospital spending, uh, we could improve working conditions for nurses and save additional patient lives. And are we, as a people of Illinois, willing to pay that cost? That's Frank Manzo, Policy Director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. Also with us, Paul Pater, board member of the Illinois Nurses Association. He's also a registered nurse at UI Health. Paul, Frank, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And that's it for today's Reset. If you like what you hear or you have a suggestion for the show, call our hotline at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and ideas to make Reset the best possible show about Chicago and for Chicago. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. 